Good morning. I'm not sure the last time you listened to an uh, Italian monk, but it'd probably be good to do that together. This is Carlo Carretto, who uh, is a fairly brave, prophetic uh, writer out of Italy. And he, he chronicles his journey of coming out of the Sahara Desert, where he spent a bunch of time uh, as a monk among Bedouin. And so out of that experience, he wrote a spiritual testimony called I Sought and I Found. And it, and it chronicles his journey towards God and his struggles, particularly with the church. And he ends this uh, kind of spiritual memoir with this love letter of sorts to the church. I want to read you part of this. How much I must criticize you, my church, and yet how much I love you. You have made me suffer more than anyone, and, I, and yet I owe more to you than to anyone. I should like to see you destroyed, and yet I need your presence. You've given me much scandal, and yet you alone have made me understand holiness. Never in this world have I seen anything more compromised, more false, Yet never have I touched anything more pure, more generous, or more beautiful. Countless times I have felt like slamming the door of my soul in your face, and yet every night I have prayed that I might die in your sure arms. No, I cannot be free of you, for I am one with you, even if not completely. Then too, where would I go? To build another church? But I could not build one without the same defects, for they are my defects. And again, if I were to build another church, it would be my church, not Christ's church. No, I'm old enough. I know better. I think this is an honest description of the tension with church, which some of us may or may not feel. There's probably a variety of experiences that we could all share uh, when it comes to relating to church. And that's That tension is but what we've been looking at over the last six weeks, going through the book of Ephesians, asking, what is church? How does this work? Who is is church? What's church for? What's the point? Uh, And so that's where we've been in Ephesians. Uh, You'll you'll remember if you've been around, the book is just this... Well, there's just too much there to get into. Uh, But the first couple chapters really are this unraveling of the gospel of grace, the scandal that God gives undeserved favor to people and that in Christ were those were dead and were made alive and were enemies and reconciled to God. It, by grace is this the operative dynamic of how God gets stuff done. And then chapter 2 continues about how that grace moves out into the horizontal dimensions of life, into our relationships, which is there's more scandal there. God makes a new community based on grace and his operative dynamic of getting stuff done with the most unlikely people. And so you'll remember a couple weeks ago, seeing Elijah fly through the dividing wall here, and we were reminded that what grace does is it moves us out of hostile space to open space and builds us into sacred space. And that's what church is, a new community, a fellowship of difference, that exist by radical enemy love. And so chapter 3 then continues that what the church is for, this new community is entrusted with an administration. And you, you may remember what the church is to administer is really large amounts of condemnation, smug arrogance, and superiority. No, not at all. That's not in the text. You're supposed to laugh at that point because... That's really not in there. The church is administering a a mystery. Namely, that God's intention the whole time was that his multi-sided, his manifold wisdom would become visible in a manifold, multi-sided community of people. So then chapter 4 starts, well, if that's what church is, and, and, and it's all about grace getting extended into the everyday, extended to everyone, then if such a wildly diverse community is in fact going to work, the first thing we're going to need is some unity. You remember we started there. And, and, and if you're going to be in this kind of community, you are walking into significant painful tension. And so Paul makes this 
a priority. This is not an optional extra, you'll remember. This is what it's about. And, and this, this uh, unity isn't a fuzzy kumbaya. It's a radical commitment to painful tension. Unity in diversity that's rooted in the unity and diversity that we see in the triune God. A relationship of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then last week, we saw how the whole thing is a gift conspiracy. That Jesus uh, gifts and gives portions grace to people. It doesn't all look the same. And that how often God works is that he gives a gift to you for someone else. And grace just moves around. It moves by getting and giving and reciprocity. And Paul says, as we practice this, that the body of Christ starts to become visible. It's built up. We start seeing it and going, oh, wow. And so last week, we took a risk at the end of the gathering. And there were some of you that were really brave. said, well, what are, what are the needs in this room? And we heard from some of you. And, and then we asked, well, perhaps God has given grace to someone else in the room for that need. Um, and it was, a, it was an interesting moment. And there's, there's stories even, I think, since last Sunday. So this last season's been a unique one, at least in my memory. Of the, I don't remember a time where there's been so much conversation out of, our, out of our weekly rhythm of listening to Scripture together. There's been a lot of conversation uh, going on. And so it would seem that God is doing a work in our midst over the last six weeks. It seems like we're not just uh, looking and learning about the gospel of grace. I think we're experiencing it. And so I wanted to give a a moment here this morning before we go into the rest of chapter 4 just to kind of pause and say, well, let's hear what is God doing? I'm going to ask you to take a risk again. And let's listen in to see how the Spirit might be prompting you to share a small story of what God's doing. The Spirit may be prompting you to not say anything. (laughs) That may be the case, uh, because what you have to share is too early and too precious and not for here and not for us. So listen to that. The Spirit may be also prompting you to share, Uh, and it may be just something really small, which would be great. A small story of God's grace at work. So let's hold some space together. We'll embrace the awkward until the first person goes, and then it usually starts flowing after that. What has God been doing in the last six weeks? Where have you been seeing grace? Oh, you want to hold it? Or? You, you go. Okay, thanks. Uh, I'm not sure. It will f- well, remains to be seen whether God wants this to happen, but I want to, <laughs> I want to run. I'm starting a new political party, and I want to run for office in the next civic election, October 20th. And I have a mayor candidate in mind. She has not agreed to it yet, but it's, so, it's a Christian. I can't really say her name yet, but anyway, anyone wants to run city council, city council, you get $85,000 a year. See, that's a lot of motivation. So if God, I'm going to be running, so if God planned, this will come forth. If it isn't, well, it won't. So there you go. Yeah. What a great caveat. If God wants it, we'll see. (laughs) Which is really grace. It's great. Who else? Thanks for going first. All right. Coming back there. Yep. Hi, my name is Edwin. Uh, the grace that the Lord's been showing me over the last six weeks is that uh, the need for um, openness and a willingness to be vulnerable and a willingness to allow him to move into my life and for me to realize that I need accountability in my walk, and in doing that, I need to be open and vulnerable. And 
willing to admit my faults and my failures and just recognize that, you know, I'm not alone. Christ is in me and, uh, you know, I'm doing what he wants as much as possible. And, you know, I'm his son and all the covenants for the spiritual Israel are upon me. So I guess I'm blessed. Yay. Right on, Edwin. I guess so. It's good. Oh, sorry. Um, I think God has been um, showing me and my family abundant blessing about, uh, well, last year, um, my husband was in a in an accident and he hasn't been able to work since then. And um, in the, right before Christmas, Scott McTaggart um, kind of had a word for us that was just like, I, f- I wanna pray that, that God will, um, will bless you in the new year, you and your family, but not just like bless, but like bless abundantly. And in the weeks that followed, we, so much money poured in that we had, we basically have more than before the accident. Um, and like, yeah, my husband hasn't been able to work and EI has run out and, and every time I feel like, how are we going to do this? Um, I get an e-transfer from someone and, uh, it's been, it's just been like overwhelming. Just a reminder of how God has taken care of us and how he remembers us and how, um, just how he loves us so much. It's awesome. Thank you. Karen. Yeah, hi. Uh, God's uh, given me uh, more confidence to get back on my scooter after I broke my left shoulder. My scooter tipped over on me, and I'm really happy that I'm starting to go on it a little more and a little more. Yes. Praise God, getting on the scooter, so good. Lots of grace, Who there's more stories of grace. Yes? Um, I was struggling with a resentment for, towards someone that I love very deeply, but it was like the stone heart. And I was praying for a year and a half to forgive this person to yeah I was praying for God to like relieve my ego and my hurt and he did (laughs) all of a sudden there was a shift and uh, my heart turned back to flesh and I don't even understand it but I'm just so grateful wow Hi, I, um, I lost my mom five weeks ago, a um, couple hours after just a really normal um, FaceTime conversation. And um, so it was a real shock and totally unexpected. And she hadn't been sick or anything. So um, for the past four weeks, I've been just crying out to God um, for daily little graces. And it has been pretty amazing, just the small graces, a rainbow someone paying for my Starbucks ahead of me in lineup. Um, and then I got um, a poem so uh, from a grandmother, her mom, and I had no idea that she wrote poetry. And so I got a poem. Uh, she died when she was 97, and it was called Safely Home. And it was uh, just, yeah, amazing little graces that I'm mm. thankful for. Thank you, Rana. Um, I feel like at the moment I'm a little more aware of the grace that I need (laughs) than the grace that I have. Um, And God's been really showing me that uh, there's work to be done in my heart that, um, yeah, that I need more kind of love that flows inside out and effortlessly that kind of goes with me when I deal with frustrating situations and just kind of being everyday me uh, to find more loving ways to respond to things. 
Um, and so wanting that spontaneous flow from within and figuring like, okay, God, I have to sort of figure this out from you because it's not going to just come on my own. So, um, yeah, I think of Ephesians 3 where it says that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, and that's really what I need. So when I heard you speak, Alice, I thought, well, maybe Alice could pray for me and extend the gift that she's been given because I, uh, I feel like I'm next on that, on that little line. So, yeah. That's awesome. Could you maybe do that later, Alice? Won't make you pray in front of everyone, but <laughs> that would be great if you could. Hello. Um, I've been in some very interesting sort of conflict situations at work in the past year, and last week there was a scenario where I was going to sit down and talk with one of my partners, and there's... There hasn't been a lot of room for grace in this 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 sort of a bit of a fight. And going into the conversation, I felt good, felt very clearly God was saying, "Lay down your arms, go in, just show love to this person. Like remember that grace you've got, give that to that person." And it's been quite transformational. I feel like I got everything I needed out of that conversation without an ounce of conflict, and um, and that person got a lot of love. And um, what was interesting about that is that sort of opened up a whole lot of grace to give to a, the scenario I'm kind of embroiled in. And so the, the situation has gone from conflict to just grace, love, and um, it's, it's more, more of a, the scenario transformed from one that was, uh, what was very tense to now a scenario that is open to, let's see what God's going to do here. Wow. And um, let's see what he can do. Like, I want to I sit back and watch the movie and see what, what he can do for the people that the scenario is involving and uh, and what what he'll do by using me in that situation so it was quite a nice little transformation game game time decision and uh an abundance of grace thanks jonathan <laughs> i'm looking at you julia just yeah just just <laughs> Just playing around with you. <laughs> okay, anyone else? We'll just because we're gonna let Julia wrap it up at the end, but I just wanted to give anyone a chance. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Um, just to go off of John, what Jonathan was saying there, and actually Edwin, um, just about being um, trusting Christ within me. Um, Ashley and I, in our in our marriage, encountered over the last while, encountered Christ being very helpful, and um, I guess just to sum it up, like in the shortest story possible, that of our existence in our marriage would be me giving, an, a, giving Ashley a hard time for um, struggle and feelings that she'd be going through. I wouldn't deem them to be fitting within the context of what we were trying to do, and I would get mad at her for being mad, for example, or if she was um, going through something, I would, um, I would engage sort of in this uh, posture of um, arguing back at her and I guess sometimes the more correct I could be in my articulation to her of why I thought her actions weren't um, good enough or, or out of line or whatever the more damaging it was to the whole situation so basically I would throw gasoline on a fire and recently over the last um, while I've, I've been deeply humbled um, to encounter my own humanity in life and through Christ. And, and um, I guess I remember standing in the kitchen with Ashley one time, and I was so frustrated and so angry 
and I felt this voice inside of me say, love her, don't judge her because of what you've been through, Paul, in my own context, in my relationship with Christ. And I remember having those feelings simultaneously, very angry, and feeling very, very correct about my position. <laughs> very, I, knew, I know I was right, I still know I was right. But I knew that if I laid out my case, it was going to throw gasoline on a fire. And even though I believe that she didn't deserve it, I heard Christ saying, just love her. And uh, I, I grabbed onto that small voice, and in then I, I did something loving to her that was actually generous. And it... Um, it made us sort of smart, a spark in our relationship, and and we've both been returning to that thing, uh, not a deserving place, but an act of generosity in the midst of the wrongness, and um, and it's also turned into us praying with each other daily, and I and I just the the unity that Christ brings in when we get together and pray together every day where our focus comes away from ourselves and our own needs and meeting each other's needs, our focus both goes out away from us and our focus kind of goes together in that place towards Christ of daily prayer has been nothing short of transformational in our relationship. Um, not just like our friendship, um, the way we are as lovers, the way we are as parents, it's been incredibly fruitful time, and it's um, and it's Christ. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, Paul. Thanks for all of you who shared. This is faith building to hear this. Um, let's let's just it's, it's the church thing to do. Give some applause to show our appreciation, but we really are appreciative. Thank you for sharing. And of course, many more stories that we are just trying to figure out how to articulate and to see and to piece together. It's good to hear how God's been working. The text we have uh, today as we continue on is quite a long text. We're going to try and wrap up the rest of Ephesians in the next two weeks, which means we won't get to everything uh, in the rest of the book because we're just really halfway through chapter 4, but that's okay. We don't have to preach the book perfectly uh, for it to do its work. So let's hear uh, part of this, this next uh, passage in chapter 4. If you want to go there, uh, that would be great. And then we can look at it together and we'll keep referring back to it. And uh, we'll see what God does this time as we come to Scripture. So verse 17, so I tell you this... And insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the fruit, futility, futility, I was going to say fructility, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. Let's pause there. Paul is wanting to insist on something He's in verse 17. He's insisting on something likely because it's something we often forget or dismiss. So he's, he's really wanting to insist on it. And, and what? He's saying, I, I, want, I don't want you to live like the Gentiles do. Basically saying, uh, your way of life is not to be the same as your surrounding neighbors or co-workers or the dominant culture. Don't allow those things to determine who you are and how you do it. Have an, having an identity that is just purely horizontal and, and no vertical to it. Um, and this actually is related to chapter 2, where identity politics get addressed, where us and them, where I derive an identity from the group I'm in and the group I'm against. And if you remember, in chapter 2, Paul announces that Christ actually has taken down that whole game. Not that there's no longer like a Gentile or Jew, just that those aren't the things that your identity is formed in. 
and makes the radical invitation that your identity can be found in Christ. And so we talked about how what's being addressed is not the distinction, but the division between the two. That's what he's taken down. And, and so when the language continues, they're darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God. In our very polarized times, that sounds like language uh, that uh, we hear a lot of today, uh, labeling and pejoratives. I mean, what do you do when you disagree with someone? Well, you say they're ignorant. That's how the game of polarization works. And so is that what Paul's doing? I think what Paul's getting at here is talking about moral authority. Basically saying the problem with following your own internal compass or making your conscience or even your emotions the authority for truth is that those things always shift. And in fact, he's saying, can get warped. Those instruments need recalibration. And so it's as though he's saying a human being is like one single incandescent light hanging in you know, a, a giant warehouse. There's just not enough light to generate the ability to see the whole thing. And so don't limit your understanding to the amount of light you have on a given topic. You need a truth that is brighter than your truth. You need a truth that remains true whether or not you believe it and shines and illumines the whole of reality. And he continues. He says, this, however, verse 20, is not the way of life you learn. He's still on this thing about way, way of life or lifestyle. This is not the way of life that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So he's summarizing this new way of life by these two actions, to put off and to put on. Put off, he says, your old self, which is, is being corrupted by those deceitful desires, which at times could be true and could be false. He says there, there's a, a dark, dark desires have the point, the, the way of warping you or, or leaving you diminished. When you give free rein to your dark desires it can, and you allow that to run its full course, it often leaves you less, not more. And this, of course, is what Scripture calls sin, which is just fragmentation. You become less. You become diminished. So rather than that, Paul says, put on this new self, which is created. This is audacious. It's created to be like God. And marked by true righteousness, he says. Which one way of hearing that, that old word is right relatedness. So there's so much newness, Paul is saying. You've got to put it on. I like how Jacques Ellul uh, talks about God. He says, our God is a God of beginnings. There is in him no redundancy or circularity. Thus, if his church wants to be faithful to his revelation, it will be completely mobile, fluid, renaissant, bubbling, creative, inventive, adventurous, and imaginative. Paul, Paul's saying, put on the new. There's no point in defending the old. Put on the new. So, to summarize, so far he's saying, being a follower of Jesus means to receive and to practice a way of life, which is what we've been talking about since October. Hopefully that isn't new. Okay, so it means to receive and to practice a way of life that's found in Jesus, which is a really subtle but important distinction to make, as we'll see. And this way of life is not the way of the majority of people you know living around you. So don't look to them to define normal for you. And third, your way of life is defined in Jesus. The way of Jesus is not more of the same. It means putting off the old, embracing the new. So if you're really into status quo, Jesus is a problem. And he summarizes it all up then. The invitation is into holiness, which I know is one of your favorite words. 
That was also supposed to be funny. Here we are, you know, thanks for the courtesy laugh. Yeah, sharpen some of these jokes for next time. Uh, holiness, you know, that's... <laughs> I, I just made a leap this week after years of ignoring LinkedIn. <laughs> I just, I've, all I've done with those emails is just deleted them. And then in my mind, the person who sent me that, my respect for them has just gone down a little. That's all that's happened with, why are you bothering me? But then I took, I took the, the leap into LinkedIn this week and became that person emailing uh, everyone. Something that didn't come to mind when I was formatting my LinkedIn profile, like in terms of what, I'm, what drives me, what motivates me, what I aspire to, you know, you have to pick skills, words. What labels do I want to project out into the world? Holy didn't come to mind. Actually, wasn't one of the options. <laughs> but I wouldn't know because I didn't search for it either. So, but holiness, is that in, like when you come in the beginning of the week, you know, whatever happens in this week. Holiness. No, probably not. And it's, it's like very out, fashion, out of fashion Christian teaching in our day. And I think most would say uh, that we rarely talk about it. Um, holiness, it, may, it has a bunch of images. There's a whole variety of Im- images. Next slide. Uh, that, that come to mind. You know, some of them are positive. Most, most are negative. Holiness. A holy person. Holy people, we, we could probably say, are like those soldiers who defuse landmines. You, you admire them, you're glad that they're out there, but it's, it's not really someone I want to be. Right? So why is this so hard? A couple quick things, just to, to address the defeater beliefs that come in as soon as we hear the invitation to holiness. I think one is that when we look back, say, if you've been in the church, there's always a holiness code. doesn't matter what group it is, there's a code. And so you can look back on a previous generation's holiness code and laugh, right? Because, as you know, and hopefully have learned, that smoking could lead to drinking, which could lead to dancing, which could lead to sex, which could lead to playing cards. <laughs> you know that's, that's how it goes, and, and that we go, you know, at its best, holiness is an arbitrary code. It's boring. It's laughable. It's cute. At its best. At its worst, holiness can also be an oppressive framework for controlling people. Be, I, I have a hard time talking about holiness and, and, be, and, and not veering into shame-based territory. Like how to shame people into their behavior because that's often what I've received. As soon as we start talking about holiness, at its best, it's arbitrary and laughable and what we occupied ourselves with as children. But thankfully, we are now sophisticated and grown up and we've moved on. Or at worst, it's something we've broken free from the shackles of, finally graduated from holiness. But the whole letter that we have been in is, is to designed by, by the, the genius of the letter is that it's designed uh, as a medium to help us re-encounter the gospel. We've talked about this before, but the way of the gospel is always indicative before imperative. Jesus indicates who you are before telling you to do something. We see this in the life of Christ. You are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased before he's done any work. It's out of that identity that Jesus lives. Indicative before imperative. That's actually the shape of the letter. First two chapters, all indicative. You're chosen. You're blessed. You're included. You didn't count, count yourself included, but you are included. Look at all that Christ has done for you. And he says, None of this is from yourselves. It's all by grace. Grace, grace, grace. And then at, at uh, 2 verse 7, it says, You were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Oh, so there is imperative. 
right? So that is how the gospel works. It's the shape of the book. But it's not the shape of the systems most of us live in or the church lives in. Often it's, a, it's the shape of moralism. And so it's actually imperative before indicative. I work or I obey, therefore I'm accepted. I'm useful, therefore I'm accepted. I hustle, I grind, therefore I'm accepted. That's the way of moralism. The, the second way, antinomianism is not really a word we use, but that means lawlessness. It's say, I don't know, secularism or hedonism. And it's the opposite. I'm accepted, therefore, I don't need to work or obey. And the announcement of the gospel is, I'm accepted, therefore, I'm free to work or to obey. And you remember how we've looked at grace. Grace is not leniency. Grace is not the removal of all imperatives. Grace is not that God before was super stern and in the Old Testament freaky, scary, and very picky, but now, thankfully, he's mellowed, he's less picky, and grace means that Christ's pronouncement to each one of us is, you do you. It's just not grace. That is not the gospel of grace. It is comfort and confrontation, both indicative and imperative. And so because we bounce around these three, I think, that's part of the reason why holiness is hard. Holiness is also hard, not just because of the stories that we've inherited, say, from church, but the stories we've just been shaped in, period. And it really comes down to this very fundamental question. Why should you try to be good in a world where being naughty is the way to have fun? Like in fact, having fun by being naughty is almost celebrated as a cultural act of freedom fighting. I'll explain more about that. But there is a, a very common theme that you and I have been shaped in over the last 50 to 60 years. And it's this. It's the reoccurring battle between those who just want to have a little fun and those who want to stop it and repress it. And one of my first encounters with this story was this movie. And we need some volume. We need a lot of volume. Preferably even more. But if you weren't a child of the 80s like I was, then you've got your Sunday afternoon planned. You must see Footloose. But just, just a great story of like a, an outbreak of dancing. Everybody has to dance. And uh, I was curious if that outbreak might happen this morning, but it did not. Anyways, so not just foot, Footloose, but... You know these, you know these storylines and movies, movie after movie, story after story of people fighting against the system, be it college jocks who have to fight the dean in order to stage their frat party, or the teenagers who just want to go on a drunken road trip but are stopped by their puritanical parents, or the punks who fight back against corporate suits to score points for individuality. Time and time again, there is this narrative that pits the pleasure-seeking good guys against the killjoys who wish to stop the party people from having a good time, which usually equates to like getting high, losing your virginity, throwing a wild dance party, or all of the above. And then by the end of the movie, this common script, 
it's almost always revealed that the killjoys, the principal, the parents, the pleasure deniers are mostly just jealous. They really wanted to stop the fun because they're repressed. And, and they're jealous of the naughty pleasure that the party people are experiencing. And so some analysts, uh, analysts Joseph Heath and Andrew Potter, comment on how these stories uh, shape us. The mere thought that others might be enjoying themselves, experiencing pleasure, escaping from the dull, drab conformity is intolerable. Having fun is the most subversive act. And they go on to note then, the struggle to experience naughty pleasures is treated by popular culture, stay with me, as something akin to the civil rights movement. That the struggle to be bad in the face of a mythical enemy who wants you to conform to a political struggle, the struggle to be bad is your freedom fighter. And they say this, this is an extremely attractive thought. After all, the traditional work of political organizing is extremely demanding and tedious. Playing in a band, taking drugs, and having lots of wild sex certainly beats union organization as a way to spend the weekend. <laughs> so what they're, what they're pointing out is a cultural myth that actually leads to very little societal change. The hard work that is required to change unjust laws and policies or the long-term commitment to community development that is needed to help marginalized people does not look very sexy compared to the mythology of, of like the party on revolution. That your rebellion is going to just have like a crazier weekend. And so they say thus social systems don't change due to the irony of like a fake freedom. The unjust structures stay in place because our, our rebellion has been I'm going to party on and ain't nobody going to stop me. So these are some of the reasons why getting to holiness is hard. You go, hmm, the whole framework that I exist and live in uh, equates holiness to like being Ned Flanders. And that's not going to lead to a fulfilling life. So the invitation then is to be holy. Be holy. Another way we can hear that is to be different. Or even more, to be weird. To be weird. I like how C.J. Cassiata says, while we're wired for weird, we feel safer with same. Weird is hard. And as we see, this is one of the reasons why the early church grew. It was because they were weird. They didn't fit. They spoke so strongly to their neighbors. They were different. They, were, they had an alternative story, a different way of life. They had lives of holiness that created curiosity. And so the motivation then for holiness, as Mother Teresa says, is we must become holy not because we want to feel holy, but because Christ must be able to live his life fully in us. So that is the invitation into holiness, to be weird as Christ is weird. And then Paul doesn't leave it there to just kind of like figure, figure that out and make it up on your own. He actually dives into very specific stuff. And you could read that uh, a little bit later today, verses 25 all the way to 520. Uh, there's a lot there, but we could summarize it this. And what I th- in this way, what I think is so interesting is all of the weirdness, the way of weirdness that Paul is inviting people into, all of it has to do with your relationships. I think that's interesting. So he says things like this, be truthful with your neighbors, or make the purpose of your words to, to make others better, to build them up. Use words for that reason. He says, if, you, if, if you're in your anger, don't sin. Which is, anger is an emotion, not an excuse. If you've been stealing stuff, use your hands for something else. He says, stop stealing. And instead, use your hands to serve people. He says things like, get rid of bitterness, rage, brawling, slander, every form of malice. Why? Well, because that, all that is sin. And what does sin do? It dis- disintegrates. There's nothing creative about it. It doesn't put anything into the world. It doesn't move it forward. And instead, he says, be kind, compassionate, forgive one another. All of those are creative acts. 
do, do this. And he says, the basis for this is just as God has forgiven you, then you forgive people. And he and it says things like, there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality among you. And he's saying this to people in Ephesus. Very, very radical, progressive city when it comes to sexuality. Temple prostitution. And he says there should also not be any hint of greed. I love that those are in the same verse in the Bible. Because <laughs> the church historically has, has liked to point out the first one. Not even a hint of sexual immorality. Yeah, and greed. <laughs> and greed. It would be a great commitment anytime the church wants to talk about sexuality that also has to talk about greed. That would be just a good little rule. Near the end... He says in verse 32, kind of as a summary statement, be kind. Be kind. The reason for this is that kindness is one of the purest forms of the imitation of God. I mean, how would it be if God were the kind of God who always was making snide or bitter remarks about you? And what would worship look like if we thought God had been talking about us behind our backs and putting us down to others? And how would we feel if you thought you couldn't trust God to tell us the truth, if he's always losing his temper? Well, you know, how would, you fe- how would other people feel if that's what you're like? So he's rooting it in the character of God. So the invitation is not only to the way of weirdness, but to actually high contrast weirdness. High contrast weirdness. So what does that look like? Here's a few ideas, I think, that come in our text. Later on in in, uh, chapter 5, he's talking about live as children in the light. Be in the light. So an invitation in weirdness could be just this. to, To move from concealing to confessing. From concealing sin to confessing it. Systemic sin and personal sin. This is a week where our country is grieving over the injustice of the death of Colton Bushy, who was killed by General Gerald Stanley in 2016 in Saskatoon and was just acquitted. So the indigenous community is grieving, and much of Canada is grieving. There's systemic sin in our country. And so to be a weirdo, to be one of Jesus' weirdos, would move to move from concealing systemic sin to confessing it, to finding how I am implicit in it, how I support systems that continue to perpetuate systemic sin. Being a weirdo could also mean addressing your personal sin. And, and in a gospel framework that it's not about you performing, like you confess, therefore you're accepted, <laughs> turning the imperative before the indicative, no. But because of God's grace being so sufficient, you're invited to, to live transparent. You don't have to compensate. And so that could, be, that could be a great step to take this morning if there is personal sin that you have been hiding Concealing, working really hard for no one to know. It would be a great step this morning to step into the weirdness of saying, I'm not going to hide. I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to let someone in. Another way of being weird would be to move from defending the old to receiving the new. And thirdly, a move from blending in to standing up. There's enormous cultural pressure and intimidation. It's enormous. The call is to be holy, to be a weirdo. One in and out, that's fine. Oh, back on. Okay. The invitation that I've, I've been hearing this week, and I'll extend to you, is what's your next step, weirdo? <laughs> what, what's your next step? 
And, and it may just be like admitting and saying, yeah, I've been trying to make like believing and following Jesus less weird. You, you can't. Like I follow a, a resurrected Christ. There's no way to not make that weird. And, and, and there's like, I'm trying to make my life more, just more or less the same, but my connection to Christ, like, I don't want it to touch it or alter it too much. That, no, that doesn't work. The whole way in is through baptism, death, resurrection. If you're into perpetuating status quo, particularly your own, again, this is where Jesus is problematic. Put off the old, put on the new. And maybe, lastly then, your next step, weirdo, may be really showing up in your life. Of course, no, nobody's mentioned anything about wearing a Christian t-shirt or something like that. And that, that is not what Paul's on about here. So, the prescription, the, in, the imperatives are in Scripture. And I'd invite you to, along with me, to look at them this week. Go, what's my next step, weirdo? Notice I'm not telling you. I'm not telling you what your next step is. Why? Because I want us as a church to just put our weight on verse 21. When we heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Let's, Let's allow him to lead us. There's no coercion, only invitation. What's your next step? Weirdo. Well, we get a step towards the table this morning. And so let's remind ourselves about why we do that, why we're coming this morning. Let's rehearse the gospel and anchor ourselves in this story. I invite you to stand. Let's hush. Do we have the, uh, the liturgy there? Okay. I invite you to stand as you're able. Let's share these words.